welcome to Crappy Hour episode 5. I'm your host, Bab. Our guest today is, is, a, is a friend of mine and a, and a previous Crap Talk speaker. So Sean is a, actually the second Crap Talks speaker turned podcast guest. He's the head of data science and business intelligence at Cox Automotives. If you weren't at Crap Talks 8, you would have seen him give one of the most funniest and popular talks that we've ever had at Crap Talks. In fact, it was so popular. We had, we've had so many requests for him to come back and, and speak again. So you can find this talk on craptalks.com or our YouTube channel, uh, which is bit.live forward slash craptube. That's the uh, short link. So thanks for joining us today, Sean. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Bev. Thanks for that nice intro. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really great to be invited to give a talk a couple of years ago, I think, at an unusual audience for me. And it turned out to be a lot more entertaining than my average audience. Uh, that's something we definitely have to um, hone in on. What does your average audience look like? I guess my average audience is data scientists or da- or leaders in, in data. And um, things can get a little dry and repetitive sometimes in that, in that field. And um, it was just uh, really good speaking to the, the conversion rate analytics and product people. Um, who are a really strong community of people who do different things. So already it was like a more diverse audience than I'd be used to because there's product people, um, data people, and it seemed other people as well. Um, so quite a, quite a diverse audience always um, makes for, you know, more interesting uh, real-time feedback and, um, and interesting discussions afterwards in it. For me, it, it forced me to not just talk about things that I feel most comfortable speaking about. Um, I don't know. I, f- I felt like you were in your comfort zone right there. Um, I remember the talk, and I think right at the end of it, you were swarmed with people who had follow-up questions. Because uh, I think, for those of you that haven't seen it, uh, Sean's talk was called uh, Data Science versus Data Religion. And just a quick, just a little quick bit of context. Before the talk, I asked Sean to send me his slides, um, and he didn't do so because he's going to be editing that in real time. And I was a bit worried as an organizer, thinking I'm not going to get the slides in advance. So I hadn't seen what Sean was going to talk about. Actually, what Sean was doing was referencing the previous talks, uh, and and he brought it in real time to his talk. And, and it, was, it was quite funny because a lot of it was challenging what the previous speakers had spoken about. Um, and not in a, I guess not in a... I tried not to do con- it in too much of a an asshole way. I'm, I'm afraid it came off that way when I watch the couple of times I've watched the video back and the the one sh- of the sharpest digs I made, I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't, <laughs> wish I hadn't made it quite so sharp. But yeah, it was, um, I guess because I was coming onto your turf and, um, and was also the sort of uh, left field speaker for the evening, I, want, I wanted it to be related to what else had, had gone before. And it turned out that the thing I wanted to talk about kind of played perfectly into some things, a couple of things that the previous speakers had had said anyway. And so, yeah, it, it went quite naturally in the end. Yeah, I think uh, the, I think all the talks dovetailed nicely into each other. Uh, for, those of, for those of the people who haven't seen the talk, um, could you do a quick elevator pitch around what the talk was about just to entice them to go and watch it? Okay, yeah, I just had a quick look before it... Uh... At the slides. So yeah, you said, as you said, it was called data science versus data religion. And I guess the kind of too long, didn't read, didn't care, but want to know anyway, was kind of, I was trying to leave people with the impression that there are lots of ways of learning um, how to make something better, including how to make a website better and improve conversion that you may never get to with a B testing, essentially. So, you know, uh, the spe- the previous speakers had talked about kind of I think Bayesian hypothesis testing, um, clearly smart people, and you know, they'd done a lot of thinking where they were working and then they had this amazing kind of um, pipeline set up to run A B tests and partially automate the analysis of those and then kind of turn the um, estimated impact into some kind of annualized revenue impact number. So doing all the right things with this very narrow uh, scalpel of a tool 
right? That's very good at doing kind of exactly one thing, but not very good at doing other things. And one of the things it's not good at is searching for um, searching for things to test, searching for changes to make. And this was kind of knowing a little bit about um, um, the subject matter and the expertise that was going to be in the room. I thought, okay, well, let's go in and use the fact that I'm from this field that's now called data science and has the science word in it, and then try to provoke a bit of discussion, uh, disagreement um, about about what kind of data work the people in the conversion rate optimization world are doing. Um, and that's you know why I kind of told you guys you're kind of following a, a religion um, because uh, in a way this A-B testing framework has kind of become um, reified as the kind of fancy academic term, turned into a god, you know, or fetishized if we want to make it a little more <laughs> lowbrow to the point that, you know, it's it's kind of, and I'm, no, I'm not the first person to say this, and I'm not even the first person to say this within your field, right? So I found afterwards, so many, many people who came up to talk to me afterwards were like, yeah, I agree with you, but I, I, don't, I don't feel you can say that out loud um, amongst conversion rate people. And <laughs> the fact, I, I kind of guess I felt like I had struck a chord because that's what people would say if you were saying things against a religion, right? But they didn't feel that they could yell amen during your, during your sermon. So I just took people through what is a religion, what is uh, what is science, um, kind of gave my bold down take on what uh, conversion rate optimization people are people are doing, um, which was you know you folks running high volume consumer facing websites, you need to maximize conversion of visitors into into revenue. Um, you're gonna, there's going to be some process for generating ideas on how to improve that and then very enthusiastic use of A-B testing to see which changes will work. Um, and I just kind of push people on, you know, does anyone ever have a crisis of faith in this A-B testing um, thing? And yeah, a lot of people, it turns out, um, turns out that, they, that they do. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually one of the amen people who I completely agreed with everything you said. I think there is a religion of CRO and there are people who religiously follow the religious leaders. Um, yeah. That's the other thing about religion, right? There's always leaders who d- decide what's right and then, you know, have their own power. Yeah, exactly. And there's definitely that. And I think ultimately the, the way I, the way I see conversion rate optimization is a tool for decision-making, right? Sometimes you need to make decisions and ideally, you want to make those decisions with some type of data. Mm-hmm. But if you, uh, in the absence of that, um, long before A-B testing ex- ever existed, people were making decisions anyway. I think the problem now is that people are following the CRO methodologies to the letter, and there's no yeah. wiggle room for, for you know just saying, well, actually, does this make sense, what we're doing? Do we need to you know reach that 95% confidence interval, you know, like... Just getting to the point, and I think I think it's crippling the ability to make decisions because mm. everything apparently needs to be tested, and it's like, well, no. And I think that's what I really enjoyed about your talk, actually. Is um, and I'm not surprised that there was a whole bunch of people who came up to you afterwards and like praised you and said, "Yeah, the religion metaphor did, did work out." Yeah, and I guess you know what I was pleading with you all for is just to think about things more widely, from problem identification to solution design, and then validating those solutions but you know there's a lot of good ideas that you would never in any universe find statistically significant support for in an a b test and then there's a lot of things right so uh, you know the the smarter people doing this know the difference between false positives false negatives and all that kind of stuff but there's there's also you know true effects that you will detect with significance that are still bullshit and that's you know and that's the problem of people laying down their decision making as you were just saying to one um approved religious technique right people don't challenge how they got there and actually you know in the time since i gave that talk um i guess it was june july 2018 
a lot of what I've, it's just hitting me now, a lot of what I was saying about your practice has come full circle and straight back at data science, right? So all this discussion of responsible AI, bias in algorithms, it all comes from exactly the same place, right? It all comes from people taking a cookie cutter approach to decision making. And then lo and behold, when they don't engage the creative part of their brain, the doubting part of their brain, the scientific part of their brain, they make poor decisions. So actually all the things I was that we just did a replay of are becoming more of an issue in data science, I would say, itself as well. So I think, um, I mean, data science probably more so um, than CRO, but I think CRO is is a bit of a bubble right now. And I think people will eventually realize that um, you can't hire one testing manager or one optimizer to go and run your entire experiment roadmap and then see like, you know, double your profits. And I think, I think data science follows a similar, similar trend. Like it's, it's a, it's a much bigger bubble as far as I'm concerned. Um, like data science, definitely the sexy, sexy thing um, right now. At least, at least April, 2020, it's still definitely a sexy thing. Um, so I wanted to, I know we sort of like skip past the introduction to Sean. So do you want to give us a, tell us a bit about yourself, Sean, um, what you've been up to since Crap Talks 8 and, and if, if your views of, on the world have changed or are you still very mm. much the, the Antichrist? <laughs> Am I the Antichrist? That's a question for Easter Monday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yes. So I guess when I spoke to Crap, I was, uh, at the time I was lead data scientist, so I had joined Cox Automotive um, about 18 months prior to that as the first data scientist, and that division within the company was formed to take advantage of all the rich data that uh, we we collect about vehicles, basically, vehicles changing hands between wholesale owners and auctions. Um, the company has a finance arm, the logistics company, we're a, a conglomerate grown by acquisition. So we've got all kinds of rich and varied data that can theoretically be joined right together to create insights, as they say. And I guess when I spoke to uh, Crap, I was having a crisis of faith myself because that ex that long experiment that we had been running was in the process of staggering to sort of final failure um, in terms of monetizing that data. So uh, at the time in it's still the case. A lot of companies that have a lot of data, which is plausibly rich, if you join it all together, you know, embark on a data monetization kick, and that was certainly true of us. Um, but the difficulty was, our customers are, are used car dealers, and so they're not particularly data driven, data savvy people. Um, and furthermore, they don't like paying for things, and so. If, if neither of those conditions is met, it is difficult to see how you would uh, launch a wildly successful product business uh, into automotive into the automotive space using autom autom uh, automotive data. Um, what we did get out of the whole experience, because at the same time as being a commercial product monetization function, we were also an internal shared service, right, to improve decision making within the company. Uh, you know, a lot of that is just automating the churning out of reports, i.e. numbers that may or may not mean anything, but people definitely believe they need them, speaking of religions. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we, we really stumbled when it came to monetizing the data, basically because the market wasn't there. Uh, but in the process, we got, you know, a team of great people. We... Uh, did some cool things internally as a shared service, and um, yeah. So soon after, soon after that crap talk, uh, I also inherited the business intelligence team. So at the time, I had uh, three data scientists, no, two data scientists and two, four business intelligence analysts, and then we promoted one of those business intelligence analysts to data science, set data scientist, which was really cool because we'd done that with one of the other data scientists as well. So I've had a bit of experience at taking you know, very motivated, very smart analyst types and teaching them the things they need to become data scientists, which is usually actually uh, unteaching or 
undoing prior things that they know. Um, um, yeah, you know, uh, and that's, that's a really controversial statement there, Sean. Yeah, yeah, um, I, was, I guess it's yeah, it's it's consistent with what we've been talking about with <laughs> religion and, and conversion, isn't it? So um, forget everything you know. Um, you're now we're now about to show you the way. It's, it's, actually that reminds me of um, Doctor Strange and how when he goes to. Um, the uh, place in Thailand, and um, they say, "Look, everything you know, forget about that." So, uh, and here's here's the keys to the. the, the I think it's true. Room. I think it's true, man. It's um, yeah, it's it's not just it's not just a thing that happens when when you become a, a data scientist. And I think a lot of people with that job title haven't had that conversion. I, I guess I was lucky to go through that experience in a very left field way. So long before coming to London to join that company, I was a consultant uh, in a small data company in New Zealand. And at the time, I was finishing my a PhD um, in political science, which and my, my PhD is from the University of Michigan. And in, in the United States, political science is a very quantitative kind of data-driven uh, um, social science field and so i had gone through that kind of forget everything you thought you knew um when i entered graduate school 2008 2009 and kind of you come in you think you're you know hot stuff and you know how to do this and that and then you know uh wise professors kind of just chip away at the way you think you know things and then teach you another way which is kind of the scientific method as applied as applied to human behavior for you know for studying social science and so that's that's kind of what I tried to do with those analysts as well that I could trust them to teach themselves R or Python or statistics like the technical stuff is never the barrier in data scientists being effective if it was they could just Google the thing or just call a friend and say oh, I'm stuck trying to model this kind of data for this outcome. Remind me what's the kind of distribution I should assume there. And if they haven't found that in a textbook, someone will just say, oh, it's the negative binomial or or something, right? These are very narrow kind of technical questions. The, th the questions that make all the difference are, you know, am I working on things that are valuable? Am I solving the right problems? Um but I, I mean, isn't that something that all need, uh, should be yeah. asking themselves? Like, for, I know if, yes, you're when, right. when someone gives me something to do, um, okay, if I've got nothing else on my plate, sure thing, I'll do it. But if I've got five things on, you know, that I could be doing, the question I'll be asking myself is: of these five things, what could, what's the most valuable? And if you work in an organization which allows for uh, for free thinking, uh, I guess the second question should be: is there anything else we should be doing? Right. So. Um, so I, I, I'm keen to ask, what did they have to forget as a business analyst um, to become the data scientist, in, in your eyes, anyways, apart, yeah. from, apart from the job title? Because we'll, we'll come back to this, but I, I was watching. So Sean is also, uh, for those of you that don't know, he has an IMDb page. He recently recorded a, I'm going to say docu-movie, for, for lack of a better word, um, called uh, Data Science Pioneers. Um, and we'll come back to that uh, in, in a bit, but um, I'm referencing this because I think someone called it out in uh, one of the one of the mm -hmm. uh, data scientists in the video called out the fact that a lot of people are just changing their job title to suddenly data science. Like one of the guys said, he's had six job titles. Yeah, six um, job titles, and none of them described remotely what he was doing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so you know, what was the difference between a business, your business analyst? Um, and what were your expectations when he became a data scientist? Yeah, so I, I agree that you know everyone helping others make decisions, right? If that's what you think an analyst does, needs to have those skills about getting inside the problem and asking the value question and all that kind of stuff. And that you know that's exactly the same for data scientists. The thing that I had, the thing that was the toughest for them to get, and which required the most like impressing from me on them. Uh, was to ignore the question that they had been asked, basically. So we, we were getting these questions like, um, is it better to sell your vehicles at an auction in the morning or the afternoon? Yep. Um, is it better to sell your vehicles in December or January? Um, 
um, is it better to sell this vehicle at this place or this place? So we were getting a lot of um, questions that on the face of it look very simple. Oh, well, also, I think they sound like reasonable questions. You know, like- and they're reasonable questions. So they are real questions that real people have. And, you know, if you could answer them with reliable reliability and and there was really some kind of difference there, you know, so it's not just that there's a statistically significant difference between those two conditions, morning or whatever. It's like, does it even matter, right? So it might be different from zero. The difference may be different from zero. Yeah. But is it meaningful in any way? And usually, unfortunately, the answer is no. So again, the religion of A-B testing without fully understanding, yes, the effect size is not zero. It doesn't matter for anyone. Um, that would be the equivalent uh, in CRO world. And so that was the toughest thing to do was to, yeah, not to resist the temptation to jump at the easy, obvious way to answer the, the easiest version of the question. So I guess people who are from an analyst background and myself included, when you get a question like those that look valuable, they look interesting, they look like someone might be able to do something with the answer, um, and you've got some time, right? You kind of want to dig into it, you kind of want to jump at it, and kind of just get the answer out. And so the, the way that they were going about that was setting some metric for that performance and then doing lots of slicing and dicing um trying to work out in a sort of non not super rigorous way is there really a difference here and then so i guess the the thing i had to unteach them was you know that that instinct of a good analyst be to kind of just take the first version of the question as written and and see if you can answer it because the point of um the point of all of this is, is not actually to answer that first vision, right? And even if you found evidence that answered that question one way or the other, you should be really skeptical of it because there's a lot of evidence lying around in the world waiting to be found that isn't actually indicative of, of anything. And so we would this would happen with those questions. So if you if you took some average price performance measure across morning and afternoon, oh yeah, it is better to sell vehicles in the afternoon, isn't it? Or or the morning. I forget which one. And then it became a, I guess, a teaching opportunity because then I was able to introduce like the concept of you know selection effects and statistical control, without having to take them all the way to doing that in a full blown way with you know a big ugly statistical model. Because what what you and 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 this links back to not answering the first version version of the question you see. First, you have to dig out that question right and say, and this is I guess after offending people so much in the crap talk, I had less time to talk about what um, alternatives to it, uh, to obsessing about A-B testing, uh, when you may be A-B testing the wrong things. So what, what you have to do in that situation, you've got this easy question and like some easy ways to answer it. And maybe if you answer it, the stakeholder will be happy with the answer because maybe that gives them what they need and then they leave you alone. And then another stakeholder comes with another another question. But I guess your your duty as a scientist is to actually dig into the mechanism behind the thing that you are trying to understand. And that's that's where a mental model, you know, it's going beyond the is this valuable or will someone use it question, both both of into kind of actually trying to deeply understand the process that's generating the thing you want to measure, because that's where all of the risks to inference come from. You know, realistically, you typing the wrong keystroke. Uh, forgetting a minus sign you know those things if you have peer reviewed you know people will catch those or you'll say oh that doesn't look right you catch it but if you don't account for like some fundamental selection effect um, if you don't account for um, different populations being studied in the same apparent population and if you don't you know understand how if you don't understand how the data that you're looking at was generated uh, you're not being scientific you might you might be being a really good analyst, you're still being Apple, but you know, um, doubting that first version of the question and doubting the data that you've got is kind of really important to the scientific mindset. So it was, it was really a mindset thing. Was the toughest thing to deprogram. Nothing about skills or. I think yeah, yeah. From I guess the the biggest change from what it sounds like you said is is removing that urge to want to help 
the stakeholders to answer their immediate question. And I know um, when I've been managing teams in the past, I don't, I don't currently manage a team right now. I'm a team of one, which is which is nice itself. But um, when I've worked with analysts in the past, sort of the first question to ask stakeholders when you get a question is, are you, what are you going to do with the information? Because I think yeah. that sort of whittles out all of the, oh, we just want to know. It's uh, I've got a meeting this afternoon. I just want to be prepared. I, I call those um, I call those questions and the answers I call them bedtime stories. You know, <laughs> so people just people just need to see a graph or a percentage sign. They don't actually. It's not going to change what they do. Yeah. But it's uh, and it's it's not necessarily dangerous to provide the bedtime story. But it's you know we shouldn't kid ourselves that we're changing people's minds with those. It's more about lulling people into something that we're going to do anyway. But I feel like this this comes this isn't a or at least it shouldn't be a data science versus BI type thing. It should be more of a case of actually is the business intelligence department in your company um, facilitating an environment where you're answering questions that matter and going in and uh, picking apart the problems to answer things of value as opposed to sort of like these. Um, Oh, I just want to know uh, off the cuff questions that you know. I, I just come out of a meeting. Someone's asked this question. Can you tell me the answer? And then you go away for you know work for six hours or however long. Um, you give them the answer. They're like, oh, great, thanks. Um, and yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, so it's something I encourage in in the analysts who work for me as well, because it, anyone who's working with data to help people make better decisions, that that duty is on them. Regardless, I guess there's even more danger in data science of not doing that correctly. Yeah. Because I, the total time you're going to spend on maybe the wrong thing is is greater. And I guess it makes sense. Um, from what you said, I'm just thinking back to all of the analysts. And there's been a couple of companies where the business intelligence department has is, is really old and it's sort of set in their ways where it's just there are, um, and I think the expression someone used, uh, which is great, is um, they will just download buttons. Someone will just come mm-hmm. up to them and say, hey, can you tell me this? And then they'd literally just press the person's head and that person would start crunching some numbers to give the output of, of the question that they, that they wanted. And I feel like that's um, that, that might be more of a, a legacy thing. And I know I've worked with really good analysts, you know, who've been, um, they come across as brash and, and, and abrasive, but actually what they are, they're just really good analysts and they don't want to spend time answering questions that aren't going to change anything. Um, and, and certainly that's... Absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing that you want to, if you want to hire the analysts we're talking about, that's the trait that you need to tap in your hiring is, you know, who are those people who are going to be frustrated with that, with being the download button? Because uh, that, you know, beyond any technical skills, that trait will force them on their own volition to automate away all of that crap. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have that, then it's just super easy for people to just, you know, a lot, a lot of people are just actually comfortable with being the download button, and that's fine. If they've got companies that can afford huge teams of people doing that, that that's great. Um, where I am, we cannot. And so, you know, if, if people out in the business want to strictly download numbers and do whatever, you know, our job is to enable them to do that and to try and guide them towards better ways of doing it. But we, We've been on a three, four year journey away from being the people you come from, come to, to just download uh, data for you. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, that, and, and you're right. So, that, you know, there will be massive companies who can afford to hire people just to do that. Um, I guess this is one of the reasons why I like product analytics um, a lot more than, I guess, some of the other fields of data analysis. Um, so when you think of things like financial analysis, customer analysis, um, there are set ways to do something. And it's not so much of a problem you have to solve. It's more of a case of, okay, which is the right method I need to, um, right, or tool right. to use to go and do that. Whereas with product analytics, it's sort of like, well, look, we have these customers who are using this web, our website, um, but we don't know what's wrong with the with the the journey, we don't know what's wrong with the product, we don't know, do we have any issues with pricing or is there, is there an issue with some of the features? And then you have to sort of like go and be a bit creative, think like a customer. And I think, I remember the first time I saw your talk, um, give you, sorry, sorry, the first time I saw you talk, it was at a data IQ event um, and you were talking about data scientists wearing multiple hats. And that really resonated well with me because, you know, you, I think that most analysts 
should be wearing multiple hats. They should be wearing yes, the, the hat of, a, of an analyst, the hat of a, um, you know, someone who communicates the data in, 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 in business terms, someone who can go and extract information and be a bit more technical. So um, we had a talk, actually, um, I think it was about four, three crap talks ago, um, and it was called the, um, the Full Stack Analyst. Um, and it talked about being a bit bit of everything. And it was a really interesting talk. I think you would have liked it, Sean. Um, so I think, I mean, I've stayed away from using the term coronavirus because uh, um, we've had, you know, we've been talking about some really interesting stuff and I wanted to talk about We'll be current... talking about timeless things. You don't want to date the No, I don't want to date this, a particular but I... historical epoch. No, but we are, you know, we're, we're in a, um, a, a very, <laughs> and I know everyone's joking about the word, unprecedented time of, uh, of our lives. And, uh, I feel like we this we're living through an era which will be studied by future scientists, econometricians, um, businesses, and a whole, you know, whole bunch of people. Um, which um, I guess is a swings and roundabouts way of saying I was stuck at home and had nothing better to do, and I and I watched a video that you starred in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what a compliment! What a compliment! What a compliment. I, no, actually, I've been trying to watch it for ages, but they were always hosted live, and it was always hard for me to go out go out and watch. So actually. Um, I was fortunate that I was. I happened to see the email from the guys at Datrike who said they were going to be live streaming the the video, and um, uh, I thought we could maybe talk about that um, a little bit. Which so Sean, you, you know, you 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 starred in um, a docu movie called Pioneers of Data Science. Or da- sorry, Data Science Pioneers. Um, how did that come about? Um, it came about through meetup groups, actually. So I think. The first time I came across Data IQ, who sponsored the film, um, so they sponsored the film. It's not about their product; they provide a product for um, data science collaboration. Um, yes, yeah, I'm not a customer. We aren't a customer. Most of the people in the in the docu movie aren't customers either. But um, what they wanted to do was uh, tell a story about, I guess, where data science has come from, what are some of the corridors and where it might be going. And the way I got involved was, I think, probably that meetup where you first saw me speak that was organized by Data IQ. Um, and then from that, I kind of yeah got friendly with their um, chief uh, marketing officer. And I spoke, I think I spoke at another meetup or event of theirs. And then just kind of out of the, out of the blue, in maybe around the time of that crap talk in uh, 2018, I got an email from him saying, oh, we're putting together this movie, telling the story of, of data science. Here's the kind of narrative arc we want to take. We're looking from various different backgrounds and industries to um, to be the voice of, of data science. So I guess, yeah, there's no stars, really. We're all just featured, and there's no narrator as such. Um, it's all progresses through and yeah i kind of jumped at the at the chance to um participate i was skeptical initially about how it would come off and whether they whether they'd be able to get a good balance between you know, enough enough depth for data people watching it to find it kind of interesting and challenging but also to do this other probably more important job of explaining what data science is to people outside the field and then, yeah, in the end, I was super happy with uh, with how it all went. I think my, my first time being filmed properly for something like that. And, uh, yeah, so they they gave us some of the kind of questions and narrative structure beforehand, but it was actually, you know, each one of those interviews was a, a discussion with the, the people who produced the film, had some you know, really great people who do this kind of thing all the time, trying to get technical people to explain what they mean effectively. And so that, that conversation was happening. You, as, as the viewer, you never hear that writer's uh, voice, but everything that we're saying is just in response to questions from the, the directors. Yeah, it just, it just came off really nicely in a sort of one-hour package that yeah, traces some of the history and um, what some of the current um, issues and opportunities are. So I, yeah. I was going to say, I've, I've seen, I watched it the other night. Um, it, was, I, it was a really, really good um documentary i thought it was um it did a really good job explaining data science as a field the applications of data science uh, looking a bit into the future whilst not taking the eye off the present and, and i guess the more yeah. reality of, of the matter um i guess there was a f- quite a few 
robots featured in it um, and <laughs> mention of AI yeah. and you know the outtakes were you know sorry not the outtakes the sort of like the screen shotty things where they yeah there's a lot of historical footage and current recent footage of robots doing anything I think it's that's a really difficult balance you know if you're going to talk about data science then you're going to have to talk about artificial intelligence as as well and then it's because that makes a certain group of people think of robots if you don't acknowledge that at all yep. then people will but where were the robots uh yeah i would have um, emphasized the robots a little less and spent a little more time on some of the ethical issues around uh were also gone into in the film but yeah overall i think it was a, um, quite a quite a smooth and everyone would learn something about data science from watching it i think so as a data scientist um i guess the topics that come up quite regularly in your field I, uh, would be things like AI, ethics, um, robots, you know, what what do you hate having to talk about? Oh, most things. <laughs> <laughs> I guess every single time someone has tried to predict something and they've been wrong, that's that's annoying. And I guess as, as, as the data scientist with also having a political science background, I was a I was called to account in the movie, you know, for that as part of the narrative structure for, you know, oh, how good is data science really? Because it, it failed to predict that Trump would win. And by the way, I loved your response to this question. So I'll let you finish it. But I just want to say yeah, yeah. your so, response to uh, the question was exactly how I feel and, and people's, and it, it completely emphasized people's lack of understanding of statistics. Yeah. So I guess the short answer was that things that are predicted to happen. 35% of the time happen all the time, yep. which is not quite, you know, I, I posted that quote on Facebook and one of my dissertation committee members immediately corrected me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to say things, things predicted to happen 35% in expectation, blah, 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 happen 35% of the time. But the point I was trying to make is, you know, that um, yes, a lot of people did not expect Trump to win, but the models that got closest to predicting that he would win in 2016 gave him winning a 30% likelihood, right? Uh, some 35%. So if you say, if I were to say to you, let's rerun the entire universe a million times, and in three or 350,000 of those times, Donald Trump wins that election. And in only 700 or 650,000 those times Hillary Clinton wins the election, right? Would you, if I framed it like that, would you immediately dismiss that Donald Trump could win? And when you put it like that, it's like, oh, you know, and that's, that's one way to try and make probability a little bit more realistic to people is, you know, what that percentage is saying is if we could rerun the universe a million times, if we could you know, as the outcome of some kind of simulation or some probability calculation. But what we're saying is in about, you know, everything else equal about 30, 35% of the time, one third of cases, Donald Trump will win the election, right? So, of course, they didn't predict that he would win with 50% plus one, but that's not actually the same thing. So getting the prediction right about the single case is different than predicting across all of the potential cases, if you like. And so it's a very subtle point that's very difficult to communicate and we do a really bad job of, of, of doing it. But if you think about all the things that were predicted to be about 35% likely that, that then go on to happen, that does happen really often. Well, I, I mean, I like to use weather as my example when I'm talking about this. Exactly. So when, when we see weather predictions and forecasts for tomorrow, a week from now, you know, t uh, 10 days from now, we don't get absolute certainty. What we get shown is a likelihood percentage of it being rain or sun. Um, yeah. So when people see 70% chance of sunshine, uh, they assume it's going to be sunshine and no rain. But actually what they're missing is that it still could rain. Um, so you, you need yeah, to... Yeah, make... and all, all we've done is like add more information about the uncertainty of the outcome, right? So you can't just take a percentage probability, put a cut point at 50 and say everything above that is a dead cert and everything below it is not. Yep. That's, why would you Why would you put the 70 number there if um, 
if if that's what you were trying to do. And and the same goes if it says it's you know ninety five percent likely to rain, and it doesn't. Right, doesn't mean the model that predicted that is garbage. It means, yeah, that could have been one of those five percent of cases where all else equal, it doesn't rain under those conditions. I think com- um, I guess people don't understand how models are run. They assume it's it's black and white. There's one model running, uh, and to give one answer. And I think most people look at percentages or these type of things and think if it's 50 50 people understand what that means if it's 90 10 people sort of understand that it's more than likely going to be one way or another right but anything that falls between that sort of like 10 to 90 point exactly is is, exactly uh, and they and they treat it in the same way i guess and um without really understanding the fact that actually uh weather for example isn't you know we get percentages because there's I guess hundreds of simulations being run with small changes being made in each model, and then there's some, I guess it's an average of all those um, outcomes. Yes, that's... some kind of average across yeah an, an ensemble. Um, so yeah, whatever method right, there's some yeah, and that's the difference between predicting things with and without statistics. So w- when you predict something with statistics, you have to give not just your estimate, the prediction, but also an estimate of the uncertainty of that estimate so you have to do both if you're going to do statistics yes exactly um so i just have to pause there i just need to go and get my daughter up sorry oh she's just woken up crying she's woke up a little earlier than expected if only we could predict um children's (laughs) nap times right um we'd make a fortune exactly so yeah 90 you know 95 percent of the time she doesn't wake up before 2 30 and that's uh that's still a great prediction, even if occasionally it's wrong. It's only a crappy prediction if it's wrong more than five percent of the time. Yes, exactly. But yeah, people want to make but when people have got a yes no decision to make, right, that's when it gets justifiably frustrating for them. So how do I map this continuous probability to space into take an umbrella or not take an umbrella, go outside or not go outside? And I think, um, I mean, that's, I, I did a talk, um, I think about two, two months ago, and the last statement of my talk was running A-B tests isn't about, you know, it's that absolute certainty. It's about enabling people to make a decision. And I, and I, and I actually used the quote at the end of the slide, just because it shows 70% chance of rain doesn't mean it's not going to rain. It just means you choose, it, you choose to ch- uh, take an umbrella with you. Um, and I think people, that's where people seem to get lost all the time. So I, I try to keep these episodes about 50 minutes um, and I don't want to overrun. So Sean, if we, would you be up for a, a follow-up episode to cover off what we want to talk about, which was scenarios to manage um, the anxiety uh, caused by uncertainty? And I think that was one of the areas we wanted to cover off because of the situation that we're in. Um, yes, it's the coronavirus, but if you, you know, in case people are listening outside of this, you know, we wanted to, I guess we wanted to talk about uh, uncertainty as a whole and, and, and how you manage that. I guess we made a good a good segue slash teaser for that, didn't we, by just talking about probability and communicating that. And yeah, that'd be good. Let's have a follow-up episode to discuss that. I think it links back to some of the things that I had started to say at the end of that crap talk as well about other ways of thinking and structuring quantitative reasoning, if you like, um, that don't require you to do all this groundwork and then take a massive leap of faith to run an A-B test to find a, a yes or no answer to a deeper question. So I think, and I think it's got a little bit of validity in the current circumstances um, where there is just so much in, you know, uh, uncertainty of different kinds, all overlapping, intersecting, multiplying. Um, and if you're like me, that does cause some amount of anxiety <laughs> that, that we, you know, we can manage it in some ways on our one, one exercise run a day kind of thing. But um we can also manage it by thinking about the world a little differently. Well, I mean, I think, and I'm, and I hope people will go out and watch your video at the crap talks on because I know I changed my behaviour based on what you were talking about, and I think, you know, oh you, wow, <laughs> no, you asked, I, I, I hope it was profitable change. Well, I don't, I don't know because it was, it's uncertain, I guess, right? Like we, we couldn't, yeah. we can never quantify the, uh, the exact impact of anything we do. Um, no, so what, one of the things I changed was uh, you talked about like you know using other resources available for you to you so i think you were referencing your academic life 
and how there is so much information out there that you don't always need to run an A-B test. You can go out and look yes. at publications. And I, one of the things I, I realized was actually, yes, there is lots of information out there. Why am I trying to reinvent the wheel? And actually, over the course of the last year, what I've, I've, I've tried to find lots of statistics and information and studies that have already been done. I guess it's easy in the travel sector because there is so much been done. Um, that's I think uh, that's that's a great observation. So I guess my recommendation was, you know, there's lots of ways to learn, and you can learn from things other people have learned. You don't have to just kind of make stuff up and then take a, a crapshoot every time. But my that recommendation I made was highly conditional on the availability of pre-existing insights. And you're right that travel, you know, that there's people have been studying why people travel and how people travel for a very long time, haven't they? So there's, there is a solid body of evidence out there. But I think it's not, I think with some industries, you don't even, even if there's not a database of information or a study nicely packaged into a, a PowerPoint or a PDF file, there are other yeah. sources of information. So um, and an example I'll give just briefly before we sort of do the closing bits. Um, we were seeing some um, a decline in, in, in some sales and obviously the business were wondering what's happening, why is our, why is our conversion dropping a little bit and it turns out that our top selling oh, sorry our top converting destination was at that moment going through a um, a conflict with Syria so I'm, I'm talking about Turkey and actually had I not isolated yes. it down to that country and then thought well yeah. why is this country suddenly impacted in terms of why people aren't going there um, I was just able you know a quick google search and I was able to find that I was, you know I saw that Turkey at that time were currently going through some conflict with Syria and people. So yeah, you, you did a number of non non obvious things in very quick succession, and the first of them was to not not ascribe a change in the average of something to a change in everything overall, but rather you know um, investigate the things that go into that average being calculated. Right. So yes. Yeah. And and the, the, yeah. And this is one of the things I love about product analytics and conversion optimization. I know it's. Uh, it is a gray area, and, and I know you know you, there are people who will follow it to us, you know, like doing running just test after test after test. But actually, for me, conversion optimization or any type of analysis starts with what are the levers you have available to pull, yes, um, and contribute to the performance of your business. Um, and I feel like there is a lack of understanding of those levers, um, and people generally not being taking. Having a wider it's the view. same in data science and it's the same in anything technical as well. You know, a lot a lot of us do that do the technical fields because we like that aspect of nerding out. But the minute we forget about the levers that we or other people will will or won't pull, we're we're out of context, aren't we? Yeah, and I you know I think I might be coming around to the fact that you're always saying I I'm I could be a data scientist, um, Sean. I know I'm always giving you the ah, no way, not you know. I'm Been a two year battle, but I think I won. <laughs> I think you might be. Um, so I guess to wrap up, um, what's the most interesting thing you've read, seen, or heard recently? I know we're currently in some strange times right now, and um, and and you know it may not be that you get much time because you are a new dad, right? So um, you know it might be that yeah. you adjusted to uh, to a new lifestyle. So but if you have seen or read anything interesting, um, care to share? Yeah, um, I guess so. Late last year, I started getting way too obsessed with uh, that thing we used to worry about called Brexit. Um, to the point that I was, you know, in the lead up to those sort of final decisions, I was just like obsessively checking the news, even though nothing was developing. Yep. And so I made a made a, a big call that I needed to like go cold turkey and not look at online news. So I did a very uh, I don't know bourgeois thing. I subscribed to the Financial Times to be delivered by paper every <laughs> single day. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and uh, initially that actually got me off online news. Um, so I guess it's not a thing I've been reading, but a way I've been reading it. Um, so since then, I so it really did work. You know, there's no control group, so it's not an experiment. But in terms of having the impact, pulling the lever, I guess I was spending so much time trying to churn through the paper that I stopped going for those constant updates. But also I realized that things weren't updating in any consequential way more than once a day anyway. And then after a while, I realized, oh, actually, I'm already not reading 
been used too much. So I can save a lot of money and still get the same impact by uh, just subscribing to the weekend edition. So I still do that. I don't have the FT digital. I don't have coming every day during the week. But the weekend, it's kind of a nice ritual to yeah re- read some summaries of news stories um, that have been happening during the week and then you know glimpse into the lives of the incredibly rich and the, the problems they have of how to spend all the money. It's just <laughs> overflowing their bank accounts. Um, <laughs> But I also, it's it's probably one of the last vestiges of kind of just really high quality journalism in general, um, uh, particularly in kind of longer form articles. Okay. So yeah, if, you, if you're obsessed, if you're overly obsessed with online developing news, <laughs> um, I've got re-obsessed in the era of coronavirus. Um, um, but yeah, if it's taking a toll and you still want to stay up to date, right? So you want you want to stay up to date, right? So you not so you remember that Syria and Turkey have having a conflict. Um, you don't want to lose touch with the world completely. There is a way to downshift, and it's you know get a weekend newspaper delivered to your front door. Wise words there. Um, and is there anything you want to pitch, or something you you know you're you're doing, something you want people to be aware of? Yeah, I guess if you're interested in data science and how I think about some of the um, issues we've touched on today, um, before both he and I had our respective children, one of my colleagues, David, and I recorded a podcast in 2018. We recorded six episodes. We keep saying we're going to resurrect that podcast and we keep not doing it because both of us have young children. But it was kind of... uh, it was our attempt to um, document some conversations we've been having at, at work about how we get the job done, how we think about value, how we think about some of these issues about what's the dividing line between you know, business intelligence and data science. And yeah, you could find that at halfstackdatascience.com. The name is a, a slight play on a debate in a lot of fields about whether you have to be a full stack person or whether it's okay to be a half stack person. And we talk about the naming in, in the first episode. So yeah, half stack data science podcast is yeah on, uh, if you Google that or in any of your listening devices, you'll find it there as well. What I'll do is I'll, I'll share the link to the half stack data science podcast when this goes live. So people do right. have access to it. Um, brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Sean. Um, if you, if, if this is your first time listening to the crappy hour podcast and don't forget to subscribe you can find more information at craptalks.com where there's also all of our past video videos including sean's Um, we also have a slack community where you can come and ask questions speak to experts and non-experts i think my favorite channel in there is the random channel where anything goes um, and conversations get quite bizarre when much like when you enter into the weird side of youtube but uh, until then thank you very much hope you're keeping safe and i'll i look forward to speaking to you next time Thanks, Sean. Thank you.